You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome to Human Circus. I'll begin with a story, a story of the 12th century, of William of Newburgh, of the prodigy of the dead man who wandered about after burial. Quote, In these days, a wonderful event befell in the county of Buckingham, which I, in the first instance, partially heard from certain friends, and was afterwards more fully informed of by Stephen, the venerable archdeacon of that province. A certain man died, and according to custom, by the honorable exertion of his wife and kindred, was laid in the tomb on the eve of the Lord's ascension. On the following night, however, having entered the bed where his wife was reposing, he not only terrified her on awakening, but nearly crushed her by the insupportable weight of his body. And the next night also, he inflicted the astonished woman in the same manner. Frightened at the danger, as the struggle of the third night drew near, she took care to remain awake herself and to surround herself with watchful companions. Yet still he came, but being repulsed by the shouts of the watchers and seeing that he was prevented from doing mischief, he departed. Thus driven from his wife, he harassed in a similar manner his own brothers, who were dwelling in the same street. But they, following the cautious example of the woman, passed the night in wakefulness with their companions, ready to meet and repel the expected danger. He appeared as if with the hope of surprising them should they be overcome with drowsiness. But being repelled by the carefulness and valor of the watchers, he instead rioted among the animals, both indoors and outdoors, as their wildness and unusual movements testified. Having thus become a similarly serious nuisance to his friends and neighbors, he imposed upon all the same necessity for nocturnal watchfulness, and in that very street a general watch was kept in every house, each one being fearful of his approach unawares. After having for some time run wild in this manner, during the nighttime alone, he began to wander abroad in the daylight, formidable indeed to all, but visible only to a few, for oftentimes on his encountering a number of persons he would appear to one or two only though at the same time his presence was not concealed from the rest. At length, the inhabitants, alarmed beyond measure, thought it advisable to seek counsel of the church, and they detailed the whole affair with tearful lamentation to the above-mentioned archdeacon at a meeting of the clergy over which he was solemnly presiding. He, in turn, immediately wrote of the whole circumstances of the case to the venerable Bishop of Lincoln, whose opinion and judgment on so extraordinary a matter the man was very properly of the opinion should be waited for. The bishop, being amazed at this account, held a searching investigation of his own with his companions, and there were some there who said that such things had often befallen in England, 
and cited frequent examples to show that tranquility could not be restored to the people until the body of this most wretched man was dug up and burnt. This proceeding, however, appeared indecent and improper to the last degree to the Reverend Bishop, who shortly after addressed a letter of absolution written with his own hand to the archdeacon, in order that it might be demonstrated by inspection in what state the body of that man really was. And he commanded his tomb to be opened, and the letter having been laid upon his breast, to be again closed. And so it was, and so the sepulchre having been opened, the corpse was found as it had been placed there, and the charter of absolution was deposited upon its breast, and the tomb once more closed up. He was thenceforth never more seen to wonder, nor permitted to inflict annoyance or terror upon anyone. End quote. Hello everyone and welcome. I'm Devin and this is Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World, special Halloween edition. If you are enjoying what you hear, if you want to keep the podcast sustainable and its bodies below ground where they belong, please do consider signing up for the Human Circus Patreon for as little as $1 a month. It all adds up and it all helps make this whole thing doable for me. You can find that at patreon.com forward slash human circus or through my website at humancircuspodcast.com. Now, back to the story. Except, it's not back to the story with this episode. I'll return to the fortunes of Robert, Joffre, and the rest of the Fourth Crusade next time. Today, I thought I'd do something a little different, something a little more Halloween-y. Today, it's all about medieval ghosts and revenants. With the opening of the episode, you heard a story recorded by William of Newburgh, the 12th century English historian. His Historia, the History of English Affairs, is a great source on matters high and low from 1066 to 1198, and in it, between certain scandalous events in London and the French and English kings storming one another's castles, you can find that ghost story. And it was not alone. William had a similar tale to tell of the town of Berwick, situated at the mouth of the Tweed River, in the realm of the King of Scotland. In Berwick, a wealthy but quite dead man had sallied forth from the grave by night. No one knew just how, perhaps Satan was the cause. But once up, the man would roam about with packs of dogs following after, barking furiously. Up and down the land he would go, until he returned to his rest before daybreak. And all of this was quite terrifying, and nobody would go outside after dusk for fear of hearing the dogs close in and knowing that he was close. All agreed that something needed to be done. The simpler folk out of fear that they would be caught in the road and struck down to their deaths. A very reasonable fear in the circumstances. And the wiser that this thing wandering about, if allowed to go on, would infect the atmosphere and cause more disease and thus death than any after-dark encounters ever would, for that was how it had been known to go in affairs like this before. The people arranged for ten brave men to dig the problem up, to tear its carcass from the earth and hack it limb from limb, and then to feed the pieces to the fire. That was how this corruption could be cleansed. And so it was done, and the nighttime commotion ceased. But, quote, a pestilence which arose in consequence carried off the greater portion of them. That pestilence was all about England at the time, William said. 
But nowhere else did it do so much harm. Nowhere else did it rage so furiously. And I think that's a pretty interesting piece of this story. The way this horror of a corpse abroad in the night is then tied with the spread of disease as a point of somewhat general knowledge. There were said to be frequent examples in similar cases, as if not just disease, but also the walking dead were rife in England at the time, as if one accompanied the other hand in hand. At times in these stories, the risen dead seem most clearly a personification of disease itself, a physical force against which people could strive, and something much more easily grappled with than the invisible enemy that was killing your family and fellow villagers. For example, one of William's stories concerns a man who, intending to spy on his wife, falls from his hiding place on a beam inside the house and badly injures himself. He ignores advice to go and make his confession to settle his affairs on earth. He's distracted by the events of the day, and he puts off for tomorrow, what he'll never then be able to do. He dies in the night. He's given a Christian burial, but it doesn't help. He had originally arrived in the area, having fled from some troubles in York, and his evil propensities were said to have only increased since then. When sickness started to make its way through the town, it began to be said that this man was known to come up from his grave at night, and to roam the locked-up courts and houses, and the people knew exactly where to look for the source of their problems. In some of these stories, as in the one I opened with, it's the clergy who take the lead in resolving these matters. Not so here. The town's religious leadership do invite the wise and worthy to a dinner to discuss the matter and to bolster their spirits. But that feast only serves as a distraction. While that spirit bolstering is going on, two young men who have lost their father to sickness steal away and dig up the corpse themselves. They find it swollen to an enormous corpulence, with its countenance beyond measure turgid and suffused with blood, and the cloth in which it had been wrapped torn to shreds. Of course, there were other explanations for all of this, but there were none that the two were willing to entertain. To quote William, The young men, spurred on by wrath, feared not, and inflicted a wound upon the senseless carcass, out of which uncontrollably flowed such a stream of blood that it might have been taken for a leech filled with the blood of many persons. Then, dragging it beyond the village, they speedily constructed a funeral pile, and upon one of them saying that the pestilential body would not burn unless its heart were torn out. The other laid open its side by repeated blows of the blunted spade, and, thrusting in his hand, dragged out the accursed heart. This being torn piecemeal, and the body now consigned to the flames, it was announced to the guests what was going on. They, running thither, enabled themselves to testify henceforth to the circumstances. When that infernal hellhound had thus been destroyed, the pestilence which was rife among the people ceased as if the air which had been corrupted by the contagious motions of the dreadful corpse were already purified by the fire which had consumed it. The genesis of this story is pretty easy to imagine. We don't actually see the corpse do anything. It's said to have come out of its grave and gone about pursued by packs of dogs, and the people to have locked their doors against it and feared to meet it in the dark. But there's no mention that anyone actually did. The corpse looked as if it had been sucking the blood from the people of the village, 
but there is no actual sighting, no concrete attack that is attested to. But that was not always the case, and I want to read one more story from William of Newburgh before we move along. This one I'll share in full. A few years ago, the chaplain of a certain illustrious lady, casting off mortality, was consigned to the tomb in a noble monastery. This man, having little respect for the sacred order to which he belonged, was excessively secular in his pursuits, and what especially blackens his reputation as a minister of the holy sacrament, so addicted to the vanity of the chase as to be designated by many by the infamous title of dog-priest. This occupation, during his lifetime, was either laughed at by men or considered in a worldly view. But after his death, the guiltiness of it was brought to light. For issuing from the grave at nighttime, he was prevented from injuring or terrifying anyone within the monastery itself, only by the meritorious resistance of its holy inmates. Therefore he wandered beyond the walls, and hovered chiefly, with loud groans and horrible murmurs, round the bedchamber of his former mistress. She, after this had frequently occurred, becoming exceedingly terrified, revealed her fears of danger to one of the friars who visited her about the business of the monastery. She demanded with tears that prayers more earnest than usual should be poured out to the Lord on her behalf, as for one in agony. The friar, for she appeared deserving of the best endeavors on the part of the holy convent of that place by her frequent donations to it, piously and justly sympathized, and promised a speedy remedy through the mercy of the Most High Provider of all. Upon returning to the monastery, he obtained the companionship of another friar of equally determined spirit and two powerful young men, with whom he intended with constant vigilance to keep guard over the cemetery where that miserable priest lay buried. These four, therefore, furnished with arms and animated with courage, passed the night in that place, safe in the assistance which each afforded to the other. Midnight passed by, and no monster appeared, when it came to pass that three of the party, leaving only the friar who had sought their company on the spot, departed into the nearest house for the purpose of warming themselves, for the night was cold. As soon as this man was left alone in this place, the devil, imagining that he had found the right moment for breaking his courage, incontinently roused up his chosen vessel. Having beheld this from afar, the friar grew stiff with terror by reason of his being alone, but soon recovering his courage and no place of refuge being at hand, he valiantly withstood the onset of the fiend, who came rushing upon him with a terrible noise, and he struck the axe which he wielded in his hand deep into its body. On receiving this wound, the monster groaned aloud, turning his back, fled with a rapidity not at all interior to that with which he had advanced, while the admirable man urged his flying foe from behind and compelled him to seek his tomb again which, opening of its own accord and receiving its guest from the advance of the pursuer, immediately appeared to close again with the same facility. In the meantime, they, who impatient of the coldness of the night had retreated to the fire, ran up, though somewhat too late, and having heard what had happened, rendered needful assistance in digging up and removing from the mist of the tomb the accursed corpse at the earliest dawn. When they had divested it of the clay cast forth with it, they found the huge wound it had received, 
and a great quantity of gore which had flowed from it in the sepulchre. And so, having carried it away beyond the walls of the monastery and burnt it, they scattered the ashes to the winds. These things I have explained in a simple narration, as I myself heard them, recounted by religious men. As you might imagine, William found it striking that to set down all such instances that he was aware of in recent memory would be, quote, beyond measure laborious and troublesome. He mused over the times he lived in, being uniquely beset by the return of the dead. He acknowledged that it was scarcely believable that it should happen at all, but then it had happened so often. There was such abundant testimony that what might have seemed unbelievable had become undeniable. But why now? Why had it not happened before? Why, to his knowledge at least, was there no mention in the ancient authors of any such thing? Surely it would be very strange for them not to mention such an occurrence, when they made it their business to record items even moderately of interest. So what, then, was different of his time? By what cause was the era he had been born into, that of the risen dead? He makes no direct answer right there and then, but there's a clear sense that something, something had somehow gone horribly wrong for such a thing to happen. And you'll be hearing more stories of things going horribly wrong. But first, a little break. Hello, listeners of the Human Circus Podcast. I'm Fry. And I'm Bree from Pontifax, a papal history podcast where we are ranking all of the popes from Peter to Francis. And if you're enjoying Devin's show, you might enjoy ours. After all, much of the travel in the medieval world was motivated or ordered by kooky pope men. In each episode, we go over the life, impact, scandal, and interesting tidbits of a single pope, and then we rank them based on our very, very, very serious categories, like what their face looked like. In the end, our best popes will battle it out to be the popiest pope and take the keys of the pearly gates from St. Peter. Unless Peter wins. Unless Peter wins. So if you like Devin's in-depth look at the people who make unique history happen, come join us. You can find Pontifex at pontifex.podbean.com and all major podcatching services. In Dr. Nancy Cassiola's Afterlives, The Return of the Dead in the Middle Ages, she introduces our next set of stories this way, quote, All good ghost stories must begin with an act of violence. It's a good place to start. In this case, the act of violence was not an isolated crime, an unsolved murder, or anything of that sort. It was the massacre of a town, the fortified Saxon town of Valsleben on the Elbe River. There, in 929, the Slavic Radari, who had been tributaries of King Heinrich, founder of the Atonian dynasty in Germany, had rebelled against him. They'd captured the town and killed everyone there, or so it was said. And all of this was still pretty fresh in 1013, when Bishop Tietmar of Merseburg began work on his chronicon. Two of his great-grandfathers had died in the fighting with Slavs in 929, and during Tietmar's own lifetime, the Wendish Rebellion had brought warfare all along the Elba. The bishoprics of Brandenburg and Havelberg had been occupied, the nunneries of Kalba and Hillersleben attacked and the last bishop of Brandenburg's body had been dragged from its tomb and despoiled. Though things had since calmed down, at least temporarily, having endured the turning of the millennium and operating as a kind of frontier bishop, 
at the intersection of cultures and religions, where German Christianity pushed up against and intermingled with Scandinavian and Slavic practices. Tietmar offers a fascinating presentation of a time and a place in his history of the Saxon lords and their doings, in which he was an active participant, but also in his series of ghost stories, or more accurately, revenant stories. The topic seems to come to his mind quite unlooked for as he's mentioning the massacre at Valsleben, and he recalls some more recent tales of that town. That no one who is faithful to Christ may doubt the future resurrection of the dead, he begins, but may proceed to the joy of blessed immortality zealously and through holy desire, I shall confide certain things I have verified as true, and that occurred in the town of Valsleben when it was rebuilt after its destruction. But Tietmar demonstrates this future resurrection in a somewhat surprising way. He speaks of a priest who had used to sing matins at the church there at the first blush of dawn. And maybe on this occasion, the priest was running a little early, because as he approached the church, he could see in the half-light that the cemetery was full of people. Crossing himself and drawing closer, he also spotted a figure standing at the doors of the sanctuary and receiving offerings from the crowd. Who were these people? Whoever they were, they were menacing, for the priest shook as he advanced. He passed among them, saying nothing, acknowledging no one. But a woman did eventually acknowledge him. She was someone he recognized, someone who had died not long before. What are you doing here? she asked. When he declared his business, the morning prayer, she replied that they had already taken care of all of that, and also, less reassuringly, that he would soon die. The priest reported this to his neighbors, and it turned out to be entirely accurate. He did soon die. In the story of the priest, the revenants are physically unthreatening, if probably quite worrying for the priest himself, particularly in the predictions of his death. They neither attack the living nor roam the region with wild dogs at their heels. They spread no disease, and they ask for no favor from the priest, no aid in freeing them from their present situation. They seem to have just carried on in a Christian mode of life, attending church and making offerings, and thus somehow accruing things to offer. A parallel society to that of the living, fixed geographically by their burial in those church grounds. Elsewhere in Tietmar's stories, people witness something strange around another cemetery, that of the merchant's church in Merseburg. The guards there, or perhaps its caretakers, it's not totally clear, had seen and heard things which led them to call out the town's most respected citizens as witnesses. And these witnesses did from a distance see candles lit and heard prayers sung. When they approached, though, they found nothing. But Tietmar's priest, by his own proximity to death, was able to brush up against the dead in a way the fully alive are not meant to, and to come back, if not for very long. The idea of a Christian society of the dead, going about its business mostly unseen by the living, was not an invention of the Tietmar text. Back in the late 6th century, Gregory of Tours had written of something of the sort in his book On the Glory of the Confessors. He'd written that two men of the city of Oton were out walking one day when they heard prayer being sung in the Basilica of St. Stephen, next to the cemetery, and astonished at the sweetness of the sound, they went inside. They sat and they listened for a while, 
But when they got back up to look around at the choir around them, they found that they recognized no one, and that in the unlit space, the other occupants gave off a kind of glow. They stood stunned, motionless, until they were noticed and confronted. You have done a despicable thing. How dare you stay while we perform the secrets of our worship to God? Leave now. Flee from our home, or else you will leave this world. One man did flee, but the other stayed, and as promised, he shortly left this world. It was unfortunate, certainly, but at least he had been warned. At other times, there would be less verbal communication. Tietmar's next story came to him by way of his niece, Bridget, abbess of Saint Laurent, and was told while she lay sick in bed. He'd been talking of the ghostly goings-on around Merseburg, and she had not been at all surprised. In fact, she had a rather nastier tale to tell than of lit torches in the distance or faintly heard prayers at odd hours. It was of what had happened when the Bishop Baudry had arranged to renovate and reconsecrate a church at Deventer and had assigned a priest to this space, which, needing to be reconsecrated, had become vulnerable. This nameless priest, Bridget said, had come to the church early one morning, so far pretty familiar, and he'd seen the dead celebrating Mass inside the church. Again, not a great departure. Sensibly, the priest did not confront these revenants. He'd been to see his bishop, who had directed him to sleep inside the church and deter any unwanted visitors. The priest had done so, and astoundingly seems to have actually managed to fall asleep under these conditions. But undeterred, the dead came again, and they threw the intruding priest out, and the bed he rested on with him. So what was to be done next? Clearly the priest's presence was unwelcome. He went again to the bishop to ask what he should do. This time, the bishop ordered him to equip himself with relics, to scatter holy water about the church, and to on no account leave it unattended. And that's what was done. I suspect the priest felt rather shaken at this point, a little less than certain at how things were going and how they might go next. But he did as he was asked. He made all the preparations, and he lay awake, obedient but fearful. Priests commonly slept in their churches, It was convenient for them and meant someone was there to protect the building, but it could be an uncomfortable place to stay when there had been recent violence. And this priest obviously had reason to be afraid. He was waiting for the dead to come again, and they did not disappoint. They came and they seized him. This time, though, they did not bundle him outside. They placed him on the altar, kindled a fire, and then, holding his body on the flames and embers, they killed him. Tietmar's niece ended her story by saying that she would be able to tell him of many more such occurrences, if only she weren't so ill. Just as the day is given over to the living, she concluded, the night is the domain of the dead. But what are we to make of this story? It depicts another congregation of the dead and one that does not appreciate the intrusion of the living. However, These seem to have been devoted religious practitioners, but murderous ones too. Once, removing the unwanted priest from their space, and then, at the second offense, killing him and destroying his body, so that he could not, even in death, join them. It's hard to view the horrifying murder of an obedient member of the clergy as proving the concept of Christian resurrection. Remember, that's how Tietmar frames these stories. So what else might this episode have to tell us? 
For Dr. Cassiola, the clues are in the manner and place of the killing. The unfortunate man is not dragged outside and beaten to death as the people of William of Newburgh's accounts seem to fear would happen to them. He is not simply declared no longer of the living, as with the priest in Valsleben or the man in Gregory of Tours' story. He is taken to the altar and he is burned. That doesn't sound like getting rid of an annoyance or a random act of violence. That sounds like an offering. Only a few pages later, Tietmar himself is writing of people who, every nine years in the month of January, sacrifice 99 people and horses, along with dogs and roosters, all by fire. Something very similar is attested to in Adam of Bremen's writing, decades after Tietmar, and then in Helmold of Bosau's Chronicle of the Slavs, a Christian missionary and a priest are immolated on the altar for the Slavic god Sventevit. And there's much more, too solidly predating Tietmar, and also running well after him, discussing burnt offerings to deities or to the dead, in the spaces of Slavic paganism, either lately or not yet converted to Christianity. It was, as Cassiola points out, the practice that defined those religions in the Christian imagination of the time, and Tietmar's use of it seems to indicate a body of local stories that move between pagan and Christian populations, drawing elements from each, Perhaps pagan stories that were Christianized in framing context only. The church, the priest, the prayer, making them acceptable, useful even, to an abbess or a bishop. Tietmar's tales of revenants, taken as a whole, also seem to indicate something else in attitudes towards the dead. They were, in his depiction, not only existing in parallel to the living, they were waiting, waiting ready to claim the spaces that the living had relaxed their hold on including sacred ones, where destruction or violence or its threat led to the lapsing of a consecrated space. They were ready to inhabit it. And in the case of that story of immolation, where their claim was challenged, with the priest outlining the space in holy water, they were ready to kill to sustain it. Tietmar's treatment of the dead in his writing was not limited to hearsay and legends. He had his own experiences too, if not quite so dramatic. He was not burnt alive but he found them noteworthy because they showed that such events signified that something momentous was about to happen. For Tietmar, the world of the night was alive with signs. On one occasion, he saw a bright light coming from the church and heard a sound, a kind of groaning. His brother witnessed this, as did a chaplain, and some old men also, when he asked around, were found to have heard it. Shortly after, Tietmar learned that his niece, Lutgard, had died and he knew the events to be connected. He would hear the sound of timber falling in the night, or the dead speaking to one another, and he would know that another death was imminent. All of this, he says, provides a sharp lesson for the unlettered and the Slavs, who believe in their ignorance that everything finishes at the point of mortal death. On the contrary, for the faithful, these kinds of events are a firm reminder of life after death and future reward for good deeds. At least, that was the intended lesson, the reminder he wished to leave his readers with. But as we've seen, there were other reminders there too, of people troubled by questions of the afterlife, by the passing of the millennium, by clashes along political, cultural, and religious lines, and of how oral traditions weaved along and between those lines, resulting in rich stories. They were recorded as clear religious lessons, 
and they may be read by us as simple ghost stories, but they are much more than either of those alone. And after this break, one more story. For our last medieval ghost story, we're moving to the late 11th century, as seen in the ecclesiastical history of Orderic Vitalis, a monk born in the region of Mercia who spent most of his life in Normandy at the Abbey of saint Evreu. Orderic sourced his history, his Historia Ecclesiastica, from documents, but also from contemporary oral accounts from the many visitors who came to the Abbey. Here, we're getting something from the latter, something with the commonly found feature of a messenger between this world and the next, and a pretty clean outline of the three social orders, the people, the clergy, and the nobility. What you'll be hearing is in the many-named tradition of the wild hunt, the passage of an army or hunt variously made up of fairies or elves or, as in this case, the dead. Orderic's telling takes us to the beginning of January, 1091, and he says it came to him from a priest named Welshalong, who served the church of Saint-Aubin d'Angers. This priest had been called out one brightly moonlit night to visit one of his parishioners, a very sickly man who lived at the furthest edges of his territory. It was as he headed home, not a soul to be seen on the road, that Welshalong heard the noise. It sounded like the movement of a great army, and immediately he thought it must be that of Robert de Belém marching to besiege the castle of Corsi. Now this Robert was not a favorite of Orderic's, not at all. Robert was a bitter enemy of Saint-Avrou's protector, and a consistently cruel and tyrannical figure in Orderic's depiction. So when Welshalon heard what he took to be Robert's men approaching, he wavered. Should he stand and offer his defense if needed? And what if Robert's worthless followers were to attack him? Seeing a cluster of medlar trees in a field just a little ways from the path, he decided to hide. But it was too late. An enormous figure suddenly loomed over him, brandishing a massive mace. The sight of this giant froze him in his tracks, as did the command that came booming out. Stand, take not a step further. So the priest stood in terror, he with his staff and the giant with his mace waiting. The first of the army of the dead to arrive came on foot. These were not soldiers at all, but rather commoners, and some that Welshalon recognized that had died only recently. These people carried over their heads sheep, clothes, furniture, and all manner of things that a pillager might bear away. And as they went, they bewailed their suffering and their evil deeds, and they urged one another on. Next, came one hundred men carrying fifty buyers, and on each, a number of small men with large, barrel-like heads. Two Ethiopians carried a tree trunk between them, a poor wretch lashed to it, his anguished cries filling the air, and on the trunk with him, a demon that gouged its back with burning hot spurs. And Welshalon recognized the victim. He was the assassin who'd murdered a priest two years before, and then died without penance. Now, blood and screams both streamed from him in abundance. Women on horseback were next to pass Welshalon, too many for him to count or even to guess at. Every movement of their horses and even the blowing of the winds brought agony, 
as they were lifted and dropped time and again on searing nails. And again, he recognized several of the noble ladies amongst them, and he also recognized the palfreys of some that were still alive. To his horror, realizing that their places had already been prepared for them in the afterlife. The priest stood fixed to the spot at this spectacle, the text reads, deeply engaged in the reflections it suggested. And it doesn't say what those were, but we can imagine. Viewing the horrific fate of those he had known, and in many ways worse, those he still did, he must have been thinking of his own destiny. Was it to be similar? Had he lived in such a way as to be certain that it would not? As if underlining this thought, the next troop passed him were the clergy, the monks, the bishops and abbots, all in black dress. He heard them wail in pain and sorrow, and heard many cry out for him, imploring him to pray on their behalf, for the sake of friendship past. He saw not a few who had been very highly thought of in life, many even who were now thought of as saints, surely blessed in heaven. The eminent abbots, Meynier of Saint-Evroux and Gerbet of Saint-Vendry were there, and more whose names Welchelon either forgot or did not wish to make known. And also Hugh, the Bishop of Lisieux, a particularly interesting name to find in the list of the tormented. This was not Hugh's only mention in Orderic's history. He'd earlier written of lightning striking the cross over the Lisieux church, as mass was said below. The tower had collapsed down into the interior of the building, tearing into the crucifix, and as lightning flashed through the open space, burning hair and beards, eight men and one woman were killed. The bishop was not among those who died that day, but he did not have long to live. His passing is depicted as a most graceful thing, that of a man prepared to go, not rushed off before he could make arrangements. In his life, he had overseen the completion of a cathedral and co-founded an abbey, and the clergy and nuns argued over where his body ought to be buried. Both the gravestone epitaph and a short poem are recorded in the Orderic text, and both are filled with praise. But there he was, a few hundred pages later, in Welshalon's nightmarish vision of torment in the place in between. Human judgment is often fallible, the chronicler mused, but the eye of God seeth the inmost thoughts. Just as the vessel must be polished before being placed in the treasury, so must all impurities of the soul be cleansed in the sufferings of purgatory before entering paradise. Welshalon, understandably, was shaken. He leaned on his staff, trembling, and wondering what might happen along next. And next was the army proper, clad all in darkness and flame, armed as if for immediate battle, and riding under black banners. There were the sons of Count Gilbert, Richard and Baldwin, who'd been with William the Conqueror in England in 1066, and were both lately dead. There was Landry of Orbec, who rushed up to the monk and pleaded with him to carry a message home to his wife. But the others shouted him down, urging Walshalon not to believe a word of it. The man had ever been guided by avarice and duplicity when alive, closing his ears and mind to cries of the poor. Now, branded a deceiver, his own cries were thought unfit to be heard, and his punishment just. As this endless stream of soldiers from beyond passed him by, Welshalon began to think on what they were, and he had not sprung from a cave without culture, without tales or legends. He knew of the hunt of Elecon. He'd laughed at the stories, thought them the foolish stuff of the ignorant and ill-informed, 
but now he beheld them clearly. And who would ever believe him? They would laugh, just as he had. He had to find some proof. So stirred by the need for evidence into bravery bordering on idiocy, he rushed forward from his position at the side of the path and made to grab a passing horse which lacked a rider. He thought to steer the black steed home with him as a token to show his neighbors, but the first horse whose reins he seized burst away from his grip. Undaunted, he tried again with a different horse. This time, the animal was more obliging. At the touch of his hands, it stopped and stood ready for him to mount, still but snorting out great clouds of vapor in the shape of a tree. Welshalon took the reins in one hand and placed the other on the saddle, but he immediately regretted it. He felt from the one a searing heat, and the other a cold that pierced through his core, and he was frozen there in place when four knights rode up. They shouted at him, enraged at his attempt, for even those of the cursed company that passes in death and darkness do not like to be stolen from, and will protect what is theirs. The first three knights had violence in their eyes, and who knows what might have become of Welshalon if it weren't for the fourth. He wanted something else, though. He needed the priest. He needed a living soul to free him from his torment. This knight, this William de Glow, counted himself guilty of too many crimes to be recounted, and admitted to having abandoned himself to evil deeds and plunder. But he was not beyond help. The thing that weighed heaviest upon him was an act of usury. He had lent money to a poor man and had taken in return a mill as security. The man had not been able to repay the debt, and William had passed the mill on to his own heirs. Now he opened his mouth and showed Welshalon the bar of hot iron from that mill which he carried there, heavier than the castle of Rouen. He had to be rid of it. He begged the priest to tell his wife and his son Roger to return the mill to those who had been disinherited. But Welshalon wouldn't do it. He would be laughed at if he tried to talk to Roger or anyone else of this family. They would never believe him. And besides, he did not know this William. He did not believe him either. However, he came to be convinced. Initially, he pretended not to understand, but he was given signs and reasons to believe in what this ghostly knight had to say. He listened to William repeat his request, but then a second obstacle occurred to him. He could never transmit the message of a damned spirit. He would do no such thing. At this, the knight grabbed him by the throat, his hand burning into the priest's neck. He wrenched him down, dragging him bodily along, and all the while shouting. But again, an intervention came, this time from a source more familiar. Welshalon cried out to Mary through the strangling, searing fingers, and relief arrived in the form of yet another knight. This one rode up brandishing a sword over William's head, and maybe these den men still had something to fear, because William fled and his companions with him. At first, Welshalon did not recognize this new arrival, did not see him for who he was. Do you not know me, the knight demanded? I am Robert, son of Ralph the Fair, and I am your brother. Like William, Robert gave proofs of his identity to the startled priest, these ones rather more personal. He talked of things that they had shared from their youth together, things that no one else would know so that soon Welshalon could only admit to himself that it was indeed his dead brother there in the night among the accursed dead. But he would not admit it to his brother, would not acknowledge him at all, 
and his brother, understandably, did not think much of this. I am astonished at your hardness of heart and stupidity, he said. It was I who brought you up on our parents' death and loved you more than anyone living. I sent you to school in France, supplied you plentifully with clothes and money, and did all in my power to benefit you in every way. You seem now to have forgotten all this and will not even condescend to recognize me. Welshalon burst into tears then. How could he not? It was indeed his brother, and could not be denied. The brother who now told him that only through the mass he had sung that morning was the priest saved from death and damnation for trying to take that horse. And only through his further actions might Robert in turn be saved. Look at this armor, this sword, these spurs caked in clotted blood, the dead knight said. It's all heavy, intolerably heavy, and it burns endlessly. It is our burden, and we cannot put it down, except for your intervention. Robert informed the priest that their father had once also been doomed to travel the night, but had been freed when Welshalon was ordained in England and sung his first mass for the faithful departed, and Robert's shield had then fallen from his arm. Escape from this wretched host, this purgatory, was possible, and it was all down to Welshalon. Robert begged to be remembered, to be aided by his prayers and compassionate alms, and looked forward to being released from his torments within a year from Palm Sunday if all went well. And he warned the priest to look also to himself, to his own soul, before it was too late. Correct your life wisely, he said, for it is stained by many vices, and you must know that it will not be long enduring. The two went their separate ways then, the dead Robert riding on, and the living priest collapsing into sickness for a week. He would eventually tell Bishop Gilbert of Lisieux all about what had happened to him. He would live for another fifteen years, during which he would do what he could to remedy his own situation, and he would tell Orderic what had happened that winter night in 1091. Orderic would finish by recording the following. I heard what I have written, and more which has escaped my memory, from his own mouth, and I saw the mark on his throat left by the hand of that terrible night. I have committed the account to writing for the edification of my readers, that the righteous may be confirmed in their good resolutions, and the wicked repent of their evil deeds. I now return to the history I have commenced. And that's exactly what we'll be doing next episode. We'll be returning to the history of the Fourth Crusade, of the struggles that followed Constantinople's fall, and the troubled birth of the Latin Empire. I hope you've enjoyed this little aside for some Halloween fun. Thanks for listening, everybody. I'll talk to you next time. circus will return. Hey! 
Have you ever used Cheapo Air? For years, and I really like it. With Cheapo Air, you can book online, use their app, or even over the phone. They've got great prices on over 500 airlines and millions of accommodations. They're my go-to for travel planning. And if you join their Club Miles program, you can earn points to save on the cost of your travel. Book on the app, and you get double points. Sounds like it's time I tried Cheapo Air. Call Cheapo Air at 855-247-3279 or visit CheapoAir.com slash podcast.